You're listening. You're listening to a University of Kentucky. University of Kentucky. College of Arts and Sciences podcast. In part three of a four-part series, this Transnational Lives podcast features Matt Bryant Cheney, James Lincoln, and Lucy Montes as they speak with Floya Antheus about the development of her career and the influence of social theory and transnationalism within her own life. Great. Well, thank you for chatting with us this morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you in town here in Lexington. Um, I guess starting off, if you wouldn't mind just uh, talking about um, where you're situated now in academia and uh, okay. how, how you came to be there, just to start off. Okay. Well, at the moment, I'm a professor of sociology at the University of East London. Um, I have been a professor at a number of different universities. I was for many years at the University of Greenwich in London. And then I moved to Oxford, Oxford Brookes University. And then I moved on to the University of Roehampton. And I actually retired from the University of Roehampton. So I'm emeritus professor at the University of Roehampton. And then, after a year or so, I was um, appointed at the University of East London Great. as a professor. Yes, I, I did my um, sort of undergraduate degree at the London School of Economics, and then I did a postgrad at the University of Birmingham and my PhD at the University of London's Holloway, Royal Holloway College. Oh, wonderful. So how would you define social theory? Okay, well that's a difficult one to yeah. give one definition, <laughs> but social theory is that attempt to provide an analytic, analytical framework that is a set of concepts, related concepts, which help you to understand and research society. Um, and social theory is a broader concept to sociological theory. I'm actually a sociologist, but social theory includes any theory of society which might include aspects of theory, analytical concepts that come from geography, that come from the social sciences more generally. So social theory is a body of work that involves the production of analytical concepts which are heuristic, that is, which enable us to um, study, understand and explain social relations more generally, which include institutional relations, structural relations, as well as the relations between people and, of course, um, discourses um, and so on and representations in society. Yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a broad concept that you unpack it really well there, I think. It's, it's about... Um, getting the tools that we need to, exactly. right, not, not being uh, restricted to the uh, disciplines that we find, find ourselves in necessarily. So yes. that's, that's really helpful. Um, so you mentioned that you are a sociologist. Yes. As a sociologist, how do you develop a social theory framework within sociology? I, I would say, I mean, from the sociologists that I know, not all of them would associate themselves as social theory I guess, people, right? Yes. So how, how do you develop a social theory framework within your specific field of okay. scholarship? Um, as a sociologist, I have a very long tradition of sociological theory to draw upon. Right. I mean, they're the three greats, um, the trio of Durkheim, Marx and Weber, Durkheim, of Marx, course, Weber, right. um, the classical sociologists that provided many important tools 
um, but the nature of society. Very different, actually, analytical tools, with Durkheim being concerned with the study of objective phenomena, Weber being much more concerned with subjective relations between actors, and of course Marx being particularly concerned with the relationship between the economy and the society. So they provide very important tools, and of course there are traditions emanating from those three kind of areas of social theory. And of course not every sociologist sees themselves as a social theorist as such. I happen to always have been very interested in theoretical questions, although I have done empirical work. And my theoretical questions stem from trying to Think about what are the tools that we can deploy in order to understand things better. And I was always interested as a young person in issues of racism um, and in issues of sexism and, of course, class inequality. So those three things always bothered me, always interested me, and they were one of the reasons that I went to study sociology in the first place, because I was interested in how they operated in society. And that comes partly from my own background, because my father was um, a journalist, he was a political activist, and um, he himself emerged from a peasant class in Cyprus to become an intellectual. Um, So uh, these were the things that sort of prompted me to develop uh, my interest in social theory, particularly in that area of gender, race and class. Right. Yeah, um, so how would you define intersectionality and how has your view changed over the years? How has it developed as a concept for you here in your research? Oh, thank you very much for that question. Now, I first um, started thinking about the questions which have now been termed intersectionality in a different way through looking at how ethnicity and gender particularly related in my work, in my PhD, on, which was on Greek Cypriot mig- migrants um, in Britain, I looked at the connections between ethnicity, gender, class and so on in that, um, in that PhD. And what I tried to demonstrate in one of my chapters was how women were particularly useful as resources for the ethnic group. They were used in particular ways um, for developing um, small-scale um, sort of self-employment concerns, so the wives and, and so of course, the children of the migrants were being deployed. So I looked at how gender operated in terms of ethnic adaptation, which was, you know, the term that I used. In those days, we used to use talk about sexual divisions rather than gender. You know, we're talking now about the late 70s, you know, before before even enter intersectionality had entered the sphere at all. And um, already I was beginning to think about the connections, hence, you know, in my PhD, you know, in, in the late 70s, this is what I was doing. I had worked on racism before, and I had done a thesis, a master's thesis, which was on the conceptualization of racism. Um, and the ideological aspects of the concept of racism. So I was embedded in that area. Um, And one um, kind of epiphany, partly, was uh, going to the Sexual Divisions in Society Conference in in the the 1970s. I can't remember the exact date, but it was the first time the British Sociological Association had a conference on sexual divisions. 
You know, it was a time of the growth of the third wave feminism and so on. And this was fantastic because there was one particular paper that was looking at the links between ethnicity, gender and class. And I thought, wow, you know, there's somebody out there that's already thinking about these things. So that was important for me as well. Um, Another important aspect for me was sort of uh, when I first started academic life as a lecturer, a young lecturer, um, you know, um, with, you know, I found a colleague, Nero Yuval Davis, who you, whose work you may know, who's very well known in the field, who was also interested in the same issues. And we went to a meeting of the sex, uh, what was called the Sex and Class Group, which was a group that was part of um, the conference of, of socialist economists. There was this group in the, U- in the UK, in Britain. And in this group, you know, which is a group of feminists, academic feminists, many of them, well, we suggested that we ought to have a subgroup looking at the issue of gender and race. And at the time, I have to say, there was very little interest in it because feminists and these were, particu- these were white feminists on the whole, were not particularly interested at the time in issues of race. They had other things that they were interested in, developing a kind of Marxist approach um, to gender, socialist feminists, and so on. Um, so Nira and I decided that we would write an article on gender, race, and class, which we did, and we published it in Feminist Review in 1983. So that began a kind of, uh, a, you know, some collaboration with Nira. We, we also worked separately, we produced things separately. And the way, it, it wasn't intersectionality. You see, we were writing about these issues in the late 70s and the early 80s before uh, much, before Kimberly Crenshaw, of course, had published her important article in 1989. We talked about intersections and we talked about connections but we didn't actually talk about intersectionality as such. Um, so in this article in Contextualising Feminism, one of the main arguments was that you couldn't have a mechanical additive approach. You couldn't say there's gender inequality, then there's race inequality, which you add, and then there's class inequality, and that it adds up to more and more inequality. We couldn't have an additive model. Instead, we should look at the specificities of experience that emerge out of the cross-cutting of these social divisions, as we called them. So that was the main argument, and we looked at sort of how Marxist feminism had failed in a way to address issues of race, and how anti-racist theorists had also failed to address issues of gender. So that's how we started. Um, But we always, um, you know, I think I can say this for both myself and Nero, we always had a view of what later became intersectionality, which was against an additive approach which was against treating gender, race and class merely as identity categories. We were always interested in the structural foundations of these forms of inequality, the material structures which underpinned them. Um, And of course over the years, you know, I have been writing about these issues in a number of different ways. Um, I have written quite a lot on um, Rethinking class, how can we rethink social stratification approaches to take into account the stratifying elements 
of gender and race, that when we look at forms of stratification and hierarchy, we shouldn't only be looking at labour market processes or economic processes, that gender and race are central elements of the stratification theory of society. So I've written a number of papers on that, um, and my views of, of intersectionality, of course, developed into what um, I, I called translocational positionality, which tries to overcome some of the potential problems of some forms of intersectionality, not all forms of intersectionality, but some forms which, me, which treat intersectionality as a question of identity categories mm -hmm. that come right. together in people's experience. Um, and uh, to argue that it's, it's an approach that uh, applies to everybody. It's not just um, a theoretical approach that is limited to looking at certain particularly disadvantaged groups. But it's more generally applicable. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, so translocational <coughs> positionality came about as a, not a corrective, but kind of as, an, as, a, as a retooling to some extent of intersectionality. Yes. Is that right? Okay. It, 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 well, it, it came out of two things. One, it came out of a critique of particular approaches to hybridity and identity. So that here... Um, you know, I was, um, and in it, in it, and it came. I mean, I first talked about it. I think it was in a two oh one article that w that was published in Ethnic and Racial Studies, um, which was on um, new hybridities, old concepts. It was called uh, the limits of culture, in which I critiqued those approaches to hybridity that saw culture as something that just came together, the two cultures, the culture of the migrants right. and the minority, the majority, just came together to produce hybrid forms. And I argued it was much more complex, and I provided a kind of critique of identity there, which I later developed in another article in 2002. So it came out about as a critique of a particular kind of identity and culture discourse, and it also came, part of it was that it, um, you know, it was a, re a honing of the idea of how different social divisions connect together in ways which are not fixed, which are not essential, which are not given, but that they're context-related, and we need to incorporate both hierarchical structures and structures relating to the boundaries between categories. So, Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I, I, mean, I think that that's a very, like, I mean... I think absolutely like the more we learn the more we see how complex it is and I, I think that that's these are very important challenges to sort of the identity politics paradigm that was coming out of the 90s and um, it makes a lot of sense I I'm interested in here in 2015 you know how do you think that we as social theorists as people working in these fields how do we continue to move toward intersectionality or toward a, a more full um, un, uh, consideration of these concerns and um, what do you see as some of the you know, challenges that are kind of lying ahead as we're incorporating these ideas into our work? Yeah. I mean, the, there are a number of um, challenges, both conceptual and political. Um, the conceptual challenges relate to how do you actually deliver an intersectionality framework as a theorist? What, what's 
is there a methodology that we can call intersectional? And there have been a number of debates about this, about, for example, McCall's idea about intercategorical, inter anti-categorical, intracategorical, intra um, which, you know, sort of, you know, you can either um, kind of refuse categories, anti-categorical, um, you can look at divisions within the category of gender, uh, intracategorical or between gender and race. So there are, you know, that was an important moment and there's been a lot of debate around that. But there is increasing interest in how do you do, met method, you know, th what the methodological challenges are. And I think that, um, I, you know, I want to say two things about that, the conception, the methodological. One is that um, I don't think there's any one theory that we can say is an intersectional theory. I, th I think of intersectionality as providing a particular lens, a particular kind of way of seeing things, an analytical sensitivity that um, always asks us to interrogate how different forms of inequality uh, interact together, to always think, when, if we're exploring as a researcher issues of racism, right. to always think about the gendered aspects and the class aspects of that. And similarly, if we're looking at issues of gender, to always look at the race, racialized and the class aspects. So it's a lens that points our attention. It's not a theory, I don't think it yet, anyway, has the kind of um, kind of conceptual apparatus of its own, right. which allows us to say it's a theory. And because it's not a, th I don't think it's a theory, but rather a set of a framing, if you like, rather than a framework. It's a framing. You can use a number of different kind of theoretical traditions to explore it. I think you can you can use a kind of more Marxist framed mm -hmm. um, approach, which is intersectional, which particularly pays attention to material structures. Um, you can use a much more Weberian approach, which is concerned with social action and interaction amongst you know people. Um, and you can use a Bourdieuian approach, yeah, Bourdieu yeah. approach yeah. to social culture. So it allows you to choose a theoretical framework uh, and incorporate an intersectional perspective within that. Right. It, I don't think it yet has either its own um, tools, of um, conceptual tools as such, or its own methodology. I don't think yeah. there's a specific methodology that but we perhaps, can attach to it. But perhaps we can start to get there by drawing from other frameworks. Yeah. That, I mean, with Bourdieu, I guess it would be around the concept of value, you know, just starting there and then working in, folding in these other considerations. Yeah, that makes, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It's very helpful. So this semester, our course is entitled Transnational Lives, and we're studying how uh, people move across borders, across nations, um, and we wanted to know how do you see the theme of transnational lives fitting within social theory or even within translocational um, positionality and what kind of knowledge can transnational lives produce? Okay, um, transnational lives is, is a very important and very current concern. I mean it's very important because um, Population movements have grown, they've become much more diverse. Um, 
there is rampant globalisation and transnationalism. And transnationalism provides a very important lens because um, it enables us to move, um, as Ina Glick-Schiller um, uh, you know, has said, beyond the nation-state boundary um, and avoid methodological nationalism, recognising that people, all people live their lives transnationally, whether they're actually moving or not. Um, Aftar Bra has talked already about diasporic space, she calls it diaspora space, where even if you're not yourself a member of a diaspora, and many of us are of course, but some you know, perhaps have stayed where they were born and their parents stayed where they were born, but they, they also occupy a transnational arena in as much as around them the lives are transnational and they they are part of that process. So it's very important. And transnational lives, um, the theoretical tools for transnational lives come from um, a much more um, global sociology, if you like, or, or social science. If you're not a sociologist, you might not want to talk about sociologists, so, but social, a more globally inflected social theory, which um, is concerned with the interconnections between nation states, the hierarchical structures globally, and with the modes by which lives are lead, led um, across uh, nation state borders, the role, for example, of um, cultural exchanges, uh, of communications, um, new, new forms of communication like digitalised um, and internet communications, um, the um, different forms of inequality that emerge through transnationalism, for example, the growth of categories that are particularly exploited in the, with transnational movements of yeah. population, such as care workers, domestic workers and so on. Yeah, absolutely, and um, I mean, I think that that's moving. You know, I think moving past a national framework and understanding what that what that entails. You know, it's kind of a I don't know, figuring out what's the heuristic or what's the you know what what is the new community if such a thing exists. I think I heard I've heard you say one time that um, community doesn't exist in modern society in the same way. Uh, do you think that that's right? That does. I mean, well, maybe another way to phrase it would be: um, our next question on here was how do intersectionality and translocational frameworks function with each other, which I think you've already addressed, and okay. you know, really helpfully. I okay. think. Okay. Um, I'm interested in if we're moving past kind of a national framework. What What do you think constitutes a, a group or a community? When does a group become a, a group that okay. becomes a, a body that? Okay. Um, Okay. You can study and talk. Oh, about thank you for that question. I mean, in terms, yeah. let's, let, let's attack uh, you know this notion of community head on. Sure. Because I mean, one of, one of um, the problems I think with the notion of community as such right. is that it assumes an organic whole. It assumes a homogeneity. When when we talk about communities, it's as though we're talking about sets of people that actually share exactly the same characteristics that they are a community because they share values or they're a community because they bonded together in forms of solidarity um, and we assume some homogeneity and although certainly you know there are 
self-proclaimed communities and there are people to come together in terms of shared values or occupying the same terrain what we as as social scientists if you like we should be aware that these communities are not organic whole and they're not unproblematic because communities themselves are often structured in conflict For example, within communities, there are leaders and there are followers. There may be some that are more powerful. There are gendered forms of exploitation that go on within communities. Um, The community leaders who uh, purport to represent the community often are representing their own interests. The voices of the the marginalised, of women and of the young often don't get heard very much and there's lots of constraints within communities about conforming so communities yes maybe communities are a good thing in as much as they provide people with senses of belonging which is very important but communities also are fractured and we ought to when we're looking at communities we should always be looking at those elements as well we shouldn't assume them as unproblematic entities of course in the modern era community becomes even more problematized with movements of population with fracturing with the growth of urbanity and particular forms of urbanism um, and isolation and alienation within urban settings we find that community you know no longer has the same uh, sort of meaning for people people strive for community there is an instinct I think to find community instinct is the wrong word for a sociologist but it's the pull towards community a pull to belonging if you like maybe we should think of it in terms of what are the group making practices that people are involved in in making groups groups are not given they don't exist as such, but they're made by people in their everyday lives. What prompts people into group-making practices? Right. And how do they forge their belonging? So we can ask questions about group-making practices and belonging practices. And these, in the modern world, are problematised by particular forms of exclusion and boundaries that exist in a global world, in the world with lots of movements. So, for example, nation-states attempt to control their boundaries so that migrants, there are some that are acceptable and some migrants that aren't acceptable. Some are allowed citizenship, some are not allowed citizenship. Some are excluded more than others. So that, uh, you know, there are a number of issues here about how... In a global society, do, do, do we develop forms of belonging and engagement and participation right. that are as inclusionary as possible? Yeah, and emancipatory even, yeah, yes. not, not restrictive. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for answering that question. Yeah. Madam? Um, sorry, I was reading. I think you had answered this before, but... Um, uh, so your work proposes that it's necessary to look at groups while simultaneously taking into account gender, race, and class, which you had mentioned before in um, one of the beginning of the interview. So do you think it might be helpful or even necessary to include other subject positioning markers such as physical and mental capacity or capability, excuse me, um, educational level, regional affiliation, and sexual orientation, which was something that we discussed in our class yesterday. Yes. Um, which I thought was a very interesting question. So do you think that we should, yes. you know, um, talk about other 
to say categories besides yeah. you know race class and gender and more you know, Abs- even disability as well absolutely yeah. absolutely um i have um, you know two aspects to this answer um one is of course when we're doing research which yeah. is intersectional mm-hmm. um there are some if you like categories that often are invisible you know that that we don't kind of think of as salient always and um, we must always be alert to categories that are important in people's lives and these of course will include issues of ability disability they will include age they will include education and and you know there is no set number of categories that are intersectional. Some people have tried to say there are. Some people have said, oh, the big three, gender, race and class, they're the ones that are most important. Other people have extended it. Some have said there are seven. Others say there are 13. You can think of 13. Um, If you think that, um, for example... um, Hold up just a moment. I mean, in terms of sort of equal opportunities policies, for example, um, faith has been in Britain, faith is included, disability is included, um, you know, I I can't remember exactly um, offhand which ones, so you can extend it. But I think the important thing is what is operating in a salient way in the work that we do, in the world that we see around us, in terms of the focus we have in research, for example, these categories are emergent. You know, we will find them. They're not things that we can impose. Um, so that's one part of the answer. So I would say, yes, we also will look at, uh, you know, a range of um, relations around us. The second answer is that, you know, in my own work, I have argued um, in terms of the concept of social division that. Social division is a concept that is useful. Um, Unlike the concept of a social category, a social division takes into account, I have said, a number of characteristics. And these characteristics have to do with... A social division often is constructed in a very binary way. So, for example, um, with um, race, it is often in terms of black versus white or dominant versus subordinate in the ter- in the range in terms of class it's often those who have and those who haven't in the case of gender it's male and female um, so that of course you know sexuality it should be included in the categories before this I mentioned is very important sexuality also you know maybe it's a social division that maybe you know sort of heterosexual homosexual as a, as a sort of binary so that these particularly binary making categories as social divisions are particularly powerful in terms of constructing forms of exclusion and inequality I think the binary nature and attached to these binaries involves constructions of cells and others and also forms of hierarchical relations about and resource allocation forms of inferiority um, people who are on the right side the white male 
heterosexual perhaps has more power than the left side, if you like, which is, you know, sort of um, female, black, homosexual. So that the other part of my answer is, yes, there are a range of categories that become salient and they're always emergent, but that in terms of conceptions of social divisions, we can think of them as very systematic, some of them are very systematic and have, um, although they appear differently in different contexts, we will find them operating in social forces across the globe in particular ways. And these would be things like gender, race, class, sexuality, but uh, maybe disability as well, ability, disability. So that, uh, although we can think of all the others as well as as operating, Mm-hmm. emergent you know these seem to be the most powerful ones um globally yeah yeah and i i, I like how you framed the, the first part of your answer too which you know helped the second part also which is that you know we we shouldn't impose these categories on our objects of study or on our on our topics yeah. uh, in our work you know it's more of a uh, finding it, mm. finding yeah. finding what is operational in, in a group that we're looking at. Precisely. So I think Absolutely. that that's a really helpful way to think about it. I'm in literary study, and uh, we <laughs> constantly, that's the debate, you know, yes. do you find it in the text, or do yes. you find it outside of the text and yes. impose it on the text? Yes, and, absolutely. Um, yeah. That's, abs- that's yeah. very helpful. Um, we have just a few, a few more questions, okay. if that's all right. Um, the, the next question, uh, You've touched on in some of your other answers, but how do you how do you think intersectionality and translocational positionality can be used to an- analyze non-migrants? You mentioned earlier that yeah. everyone is transnational, whether they yes. know it or not. Yes. Um, and so I'd be interested to hear kind of how how you see these concepts working with non-migrants or okay yeah. Okay. I mean, these are not concepts um, that actually um, are specifically about migrants. If you look at intersectionality, it emerged as an approach through the work of Patricia Hill Collins, Bell Hooks, um, through the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, in terms particularly of understanding the experience of racialized women, particularly black women. So they emerged out of anti-racist feminism, if you like. And this is where, you know, my own work started in the the late 70s and early 80s through an anti-racist feminism and a kind of, you know, I was also sort of uh, very married to a kind of um, developing a Marxist approach that also was able to incorporate gender and race into it. So it wasn't specifically about migrants. Um, And... But also, intersectionality started as a way of addressing disadvantage. And one of the things that we can see today with its development is that actually intersectionality can also address forms of advantage. What are the intersections that help advantage groups? You know, it's not just about disadvantage. We can can look at the colonisers, for example. What were the intersections there with the colonisers, with dominant capitalist classes and so on? So, But apart from exploring advantage and disadvantage, it's also something that we can use to explore everybody's lives. Everybody lives their lives intersectionally. Everybody operates in terms of the hierarchies and boundaries of social categorisation, 
evaluation, um, social stigmatization, um, so social valuation, status, and so on. This is informs everybody's lives. That's why I think it's it's a it's it's a theoretical framing right. which applies to the study of society more generally, not just to groups. Right. And groups, in any case, are always made, they're constructed, they're never given. So it's part of a, part of the group making exercise is the intersections within which group making is forged. And similarly with translocational positionality, all of us um, are involved in this processual element which I've called um, the making of translocational positionalities. That is the making of social locations and how social locations come together in different times, in different contexts, to produce particular effects, both in terms of our objective social position, but the way we position ourselves in relation to that. Right. No, that's helpful, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's very helpful. I think we have one more question. So kind of shifting gears, um, what advice do you have for emerging scholars for the next generation, I guess us? Yeah. Um, and what are one or two things that you wish someone had told you while you were in graduate school? Okay, well let's take the first one. What advice would I give? Yeah. I mean, one of the main advices that I would give is Follow your interests. Follow that which you're passionate about. Um, I know it's not so easy always because there is a job market out there which uh, pulls you in particular directions. But in order to do effective academic work, my view is you need to be really engaged with what you're doing. So that's one advice is, you know, do where your heart and your mind take you and then put all your effort into it, all your energy into it and don't get disheartened, which is the second part of the advice. The first is, you know, go where your passion takes you. The second, never be disheartened. And one of the things that um, often um, PhD students or those who've recently got their PhD have said is how difficult it is for them to make an impact. It's all been said before, or they've um, sent um, articles to be published and they've had these rejections or these comments that sometimes are very hard to take. And I always say, if you believe in yourself, get on with it. You know, don't take to heart what a reviewer might say about what you've done. Polish it up, change it, transform it, work at it, keep at it, and you will succeed. So I think they're the two aspects, passion and perseverance and belief in yourself. And, you know... Don't let yourself be disheartened because actually the whole review process of your work can be very damaging psychologically to you. You know, your one of your supervisors might say, I don't like what you've done. Uh, you're, you might submit an article and, you know, I've had it done to me. I, you know, I've had one um, article that actually got, you know, really well cited. But when I first um, submitted it uh, to a journal, I was told, you know, this is not up to standard. You know, so... You know, it was. You know, I was a lot younger then, and of course, it was very upsetting. Um, but 
you know, I persisted because I thought, actually, I do have something to say. I'm not going to allow this person. And interestingly enough, there was also, um, we edited a book with Nira Yuval Davis, which became quite well known, Woman, Nation, State, which was one of the first studies on the relationship between gender and nationalism. And we submitted our introduction to a journal in America, and we got rejected. We were told... Actually, you know, there's no empirical evidence that there's any connection between gender and nation and so on. But we persisted because and we did the book because we believed in it. I'm so glad we did it. So that's one of the advices I would say. And I wish my, you know, it's one of my, you know, as a graduate student, I'd been told, yes, you know, sort of don't get disheartened, keep at it and, you know, follow, you know, the vision that you have for yourself. I think that that's that's really helpful because so often I feel like we're I mean we were talking about this the other day briefly about how we're kind of put into kind of funneled into something right in our work and um, a lot of times our passions might not fit with those funnels so it's it's helpful to think about it that way and it's encouraging mm-hmm. great well, yes yeah, sometimes because you know you you might be saying things beyond your time that, that in a way you know the academic community is stuck in one position is unwilling to move a little bit more or take take the next step. And there are always investments by scholars in particular approaches. And, you know, it can be more difficult, actually, if you're developing a theoretical tool than if you're, pro- if you're producing sort of empirical work. Right. Because, you know, you, you could be regarded as a maverick, as someone, you know, outside the fold, you know, sort of trying to undermine, you know, the, the, right. the conventional um, received wisdoms of the time. And that's a risk. You, you, you need to take risks as well. That's the other thing. And, you know, if you do see loopholes and problems, to be willing to explore them, um, you know, sometimes at risk, but, you know, it can pay off in the end. Thank you so much Thank for you chatting very with us today. interesting, challenging questions. So. Yeah. Lovely to meet you as well. Absolutely. Thank you for listening, and thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences, the Committee on Social Theory, and Social Theory 600 Transnational Lives for making this podcast possible.